Hello, Grace family. Here we are in the middle of Advent season and this great celebration of the arrival of the King of Kings and the new covenant that we have in Christ. And we want to be people who are functioning out of this great expectation that brings us true hope and peace and joy and love. And we also want to be people who are throwing off, so to speak, the things that encumber us that keep us from being able to draw near so let's take some time to pray to just prepare our hearts for worship during this advent season let's pray father we just uh, come to you now we want to be people who are truly drawing near we ask that you would remove the things that are distracting us from hearing you from listening to your voice from being attuned to what it is you're doing around us Lord, in the time of uncertainty that is so shaping this season, we actually ask that you would make us so aware of your stability and your presence and your constancy and how we can absolutely find you faithful in all seasons. Lord, we do pray that you would fill our hearts with great hope and joy and expectation and love, that that would be something that supersedes our understanding of what you're doing in this season, and that we can reflect that to the world around us. God, we invite you now to come and be very present in our worship. May your spirit be moving, and we pray this in your name. Amen.
So as we continue our Advent series, we'll be looking at two passages again, one in Isaiah and one in Matthew. So join with me in reading Isaiah 40, 1 through 5. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the desert prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And this is Matthew 3, 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the roots of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning we are continuing in our Advent series. And we're looking at these classic Advent postures. Last week, we looked at the posture of waiting on God. And today, we're going to look at the posture of repentance, which is a classic Advent posture. We've got two passages to do that today. First, Isaiah 40, which is one of my favorite chapters in all the Old Testament. And it is famous to some of us who know Handel's Messiah. This is actually the opening lines of the Messiah come from Isaiah 40, verse 1. But the context of Isaiah 40 is a time of great disobedience and idolatry in Israel's history. And so Isaiah is writing this and he's prophesying to warn them uh, about their disobedience. And really he has a twofold message. The, the first message is he's warning them of God's judgment. And that judgment is going to take the form of foreign invaders who will come and ultimately carry them into exile. But the second message is this message of coming salvation. There's going to be judgment but then God is going to redeem his, his people, Israel. He's going to restore them, bring them back into the land and, and make them his people once again. And really chapter 40 represents the turning point in that shift from judgment to salvation. And really the tone starts to shift and take on this more uh, tenderness that you see in, in verse 1, this, this 
tone of, of comfort and this promise that, that God is now going to show up in this powerful and beautiful way for his people. And I love the God that we see in Isaiah 40, how he's described. that He's, he's described as, as, as tender and as loving, but also as wild and powerful and incomparable. And I just want to give you a glimpse of the God that we meet in Isaiah 40. First, there's this tenderness, right? Verse 1, comfort. Comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. Or later in verse 11, it uses this image of God. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. So these tender, comforting images of God. But you also get these very powerful, wild images of God in this passage. Look at verse 6. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass. All their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. Verse 8, the grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Or verse 10, see the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See his reward is with him. Or verse 25, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls forth each of them by name. So you see this God who is powerful, who is mighty, who you, there's, you can't compare anybody to him. And this is really said in the context of the idolatry of Israel because they had gone after other gods. And so God's point is to say, no one else can compare. No other idol can compare to me. Verse 18, with whom will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains where God is the incomparable God compared to all these idols out there. All that say he is the one and only God. He is tender and he is mighty. He is gentle and yet he is sovereign and powerful. He is not someone to be reckoned with and his salvation is on its way. That's the message of Isaiah 40. So then the question is, what do we do? In light of that message, what is to be done? And the answer is verse 3, prepare the way for the Lord. It says, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Isaiah gives us this image of a desert, uh, which is oftentimes where God's salvation would come, right? Think of the Exodus story as he led them through the wilderness. But there's this picture, it's a word picture of a wilderness where God's salvation is going to come forth. But this wilderness is, as it says uh, in verse 4, uh, yeah, in verse 4, this wilderness is crooked. There's crooked places and there's valleys and there's hills. All that to say there's all these obstacles to God's salvation coming. And so the idea is we need to prepare the way. We need to make a straight way. We need to level the valleys. We need to level the mountains. We need to make the crooked places straight so that there's, there are no obstacles to God's salvation coming. In today's language, we'd say we need to roll out the red carpet, right, for God. We need to make his salvation come simply, straightly, cleanly, easily. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight the path for God's salvation to come to his people, Israel. That is Isaiah 40. All right, now let's jump uh, fast forward a couple hundreds of years uh, to the ministry of John the Baptist. 
in Matthew 3, the second reading we had. Uh, last week, we heard about the angel's promise to Zechariah that, that he and his wife would give birth to John, and now we're seeing John as an adult in his public ministry. So uh, all four of the Gospels actually connect the ministry of John to uh, Isaiah 40. And, you know, John's a wild man. I mean, he, he is a prophet in the spirit of Elijah. He's dressed like Elijah. He's out there in the wilderness, literally in the desert, uh, preparing the way for the Lord, as Isaiah 40 says. And his message is actually very similar to the message of Isaiah 40. Uh, first, it's this. God's salvation is on its way. His mighty salvation is on its way. Look at verse 2. The kingdom of heaven has come near. The king is on his way. And for John, that means the coming Messiah. And as you read about the Messiah that John is anticipating, this Messiah sounds very similar to the Lord of Isaiah 40, meaning he is both tender, but he is also mighty and powerful. Right? You get this tender image in verse 2, that the kingdom of heaven has come near. There's a nearness and a drawing near that there's something comforting about that. Uh, at the end of verse 12, it talks about the Messiah who will gather his wheat into the barn. He's going to gather his people and, and create safety like wheat in a barn. So there's a tenderness there. Uh, but there's also a wildness and there's a power to this coming Messiah. And really, that's I think that's what John focuses on most of all. Again, just like the Lord of Isaiah 40, this coming Messiah will be incomparable in his power. Look at verse 11. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. It's no comparison. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then, of course, this image in verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Wow. So this image of, of there's going to be a sifting of God's people uh, when, when the Messiah comes, and some are going to be judged, and some are going to be gathered up and saved. All that to say there's a, there's a reckoning to be had. So, something's about to happen, but it's, it's also salvation. It's salvation and it's a reckoning all at once. And so the question is, so what then do we do in light of this coming powerful, frightening salvation? And the answer is just the same as Isaiah 40. What do we do? We prepare the way. And this is really what John's role was, to prepare the way for the Lord, to make the people ready for their Messiah. And what John does is he takes that desert image of Isaiah 40, and he basically applies it to the hearts of the people of his day, that their hearts are like that wilderness that's got this crooked road, that's got valleys and mountains, that the people's hearts are full of obstacles. They're crooked. There's, there's, there's things getting in the way of them encountering and being ready for their Messiah. And so what they need to do is they need to prepare their hearts for the coming King. And so what they need in that preparation, in a word, and this is the word of the day, is they need repentance. That's how they're going to prepare their hearts, through these acts of repentance. Verse 2, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Verse 6, he has them confessing their sins and being washed clean in the Jordan River. So he's talking about a preparation of repentance. And let me just mention what 
repentance means to John, and I think what repentance means in Scripture, uh, it means two things. First, repentance is first and foremost a change of mind or a change of attitude. In fact, the Greek word is metanoia. It literally means to change your mind. So there's a perspective that we have or a way of thinking that needs to be changed that's part of what repentance is. John mentions a specific perspective of the Jews in that day in verse 9. He says, don't think, so he's thinking about their thinking, don't think you can say to yourselves, oh, we have Abraham as our father. No, I tell you out of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. So the Jews of the day had this mindset, as long as we're ethnic Jews, as long as we're descendants of Abraham, we're good. We're saved. We're God's people. And he's like, no, that's the wrong mindset. You need to think, you need to change your attitude about that. Okay. And then that's the first part of repentance is a change of the mind. And then with that, there comes a turning or a change of behavior. The, the Hebrew word shuv is, is the word for repentance. And it means to turn or to, to return. So it's not just that we change our mind, that we actually, we turn from certain behaviors. We return from a certain way of living and we return to the way of living that God would have for us. In verse 8, uh, John says it this way. He says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, right? You actually have to, there, there's a fruitful life that comes from repentance, not just a a way of thinking, but it's also a way of living. There's a change of behavior. Uh, in Luke's account of, of John the Baptist here, um, he gives some very concrete actions, examples of what repentance looks like. Let me just read to you from, from Luke's account. Uh, the crowd says this, uh, what should we do then? The crowd asked and John answered, here's what repentance looks like essentially. The man with two tunics should share with him who has none. And the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. So notice how practical repentance is here. How, you know, these are practical acts of generosity or fairness or or contentment. So all that to say, re repentance is this, this change of mind and then this turning to the Lord uh, that bears fruit in concrete ways of living life. This is the way to prepare for the Lord, John says. So here we are in this season of Advent, which is this uh, very intentional season set aside for a time of confession and repentance as we prepare, in a sense, for the coming of the Lord uh, on that first Christmas morning, then, of course, as we prepare for the future coming of the Lord, we want to live these lives of confession and repentance. And, and Advent is a season where we focus on that. And so I thought it'd be interesting just to think about repentance uh, within the context of this year we've had, uh, this year of 2020, which has been an un -year, uh, a year unlike any other. And, you know, last week I talked about um, you know, this year on one hand has had these unprecedented losses and disappointments and, and situations where we just find ourselves waiting uh, in very unique ways. And so that this year has provided us with an opportunity to, to lament and to groan the brokenness of this world that we're living in. But this week, I want to remind us that this year has also in a unique way confronted us. It has shed light on what is going on in our hearts in ways that other years don't. It has exposed, in certain ways, some of the idols 
that we live with. Some of the, what I call disordered attachments, the things that our hearts are attached to in ways that are out of order, out of whack, out of priority, the things that we value and cling to. And I think this year, unlike any other, has probably for many of us revealed that our hearts in some ways are like that desert that Isaiah talks about, that we have seen the crookedness of our hearts. We've seen um, the obstacles, the barriers, the things that, that get in the way of our relationship with God. And so I think this year is actually a, a very unique opportunity. And this season is an opportunity for confession and repentance as we just kind of reflect on what we've noticed in our own hearts uh, through the challenges of 2020. And so I want to list a couple of things that came to my mind, things that we maybe could find ourselves uh, repenting of, confessing that's been in our hearts. Um, I'll start with the thinking. I, I think many of us uh, probably live with this attitude that is common in, in a prosperous nation, uh, like the one we live in, that um, we just kind of generally have this attitude that that the world owes me a comfortable life, right? I mean, we wouldn't say it that way, but um, we just kind of think, yeah, God in the world kind of owes me a, a comfortable life. And we've learned this year, the world doesn't owe us anything. <laughs> like, like, there's no guarantees. The, the world doesn't owe us anything. God doesn't owe us anything. And we We've learned that certain things have been pulled from us, and that attitude was just a wrong way of thinking about life. Uh, some of us have uh, been confronted with our deep need for control, and we have learned that we are control freaks in ways we didn't actually realize uh, until that illusion of control was kind of stripped from us, and we're realizing, wow, man, I have this deep need for control, and that's, I've been confronted with that this year. Uh, for some of us, I think, especially early on in covid um, we are confronted with the pace of our lives. And as we are forced to slow down for, you know, like a month, we realize, man, I've been running at this frantic pace for a long time. Actually, it feels really good to kind of slow down. And um, I'm confronted with what, what is driving that, that busyness and all that activity. And I need to sit with that for a little bit. Um, I think this year has revealed for many of us a lack of discipline in our spiritual lives with God. Um, we're used to having these things in place like Sunday church and maybe our midweek, you know, groups. And those have kind of be the things that, that ground us spiritually. But when those were pulled away for a time, um, we're confronted with, really, I don't have great personal disciplines of like daily prayer, daily scripture reading. When, when these externals are pulled away, I don't have a great internal uh, locus for pursuing my relationship with God. And we've been confronted with that lack of discipline. Some of us probably, as, as we've started to regather here, some of us has, have been confronted with our lack of discipline there. We, we just haven't started gathering, not because we're concerned for our health, but we've just gotten in the habit of not going to church. And now we're kind of like, it's kind of nice just to be at home. And um, I'm not sure if I want to do that as regularly. And so we're confronted with our, our lack of discipline in, or maybe even motivation on that side of things. Um, many of us, I think, have been confronted with our, our addictions, uh, with uh, the, the places we go for comfort, the, the places our hearts go when we're anxious, uh, when we're fearful. I think many of us have, have had a lot more alcohol this year than we're used to. Um, we've, just, we've just gone after entertainment. We've just binged, binge watched a lot more than we're used to. Uh, some of us have been confronted with our anger. Uh, we've been really angry and frustrated this year. and We realized, man, I'm, I don't know how to control that. I could keep going, but I think uh, this year has exposed some of the idols, some of the, the attachments, some of the crookedness of our hearts. And so Advent really is this opportunity to, to confess, 
uh, to the Lord and say, our hearts aren't all that we would want them to be for you. And actually, these things that we cling to, these, these keep us uh, from a deeper and richer and more life-giving relationship with you, God. And, you know, I, I just want to acknowledge, in some ways, it, it could be a tough sell calling people to repentance in 2020, right? Like, I mean, to, to hear, you need to repent, it's kind of like, are you just going to kick me while I'm down? Like, um, there's been enough disappointments, enough losses in this year, and um, the call to repentance just feels kind of kind of cruel and kind of harsh. And, and don't we actually, don't we need like encouragement? Don't we need comfort right now, not repentance? And I just want to say, uh, yes, we need encouragement and comfort and we need repentance. We really do. And what, I, what I've come to learn about repentance is uh, repentance is so very good for the soul. Uh, there's nothing better for the soul than repentance. And repentance and confession, they are so central to a thriving relationship with God. Because the idols of our hearts, the things that we cling to, those are the things that keep us from a deeper experience of God. And so really, confession and repentance can be these, these wonderfully freeing things that, that prepare the way for the Lord, that make straight a path that God might do a work of renewal and refreshment in our lives. Um, I love the language of Acts 3. I want to read this to you. Um, this is one of Peter's sermons to the crowd in Jerusalem pretty shortly after Pentecost. And look, look at this language of repentance and what comes with it. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that, may he, that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. I love that image of repentance that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And I just, here's what I would say, and I'm, I'm going to wrap this up. I can testify to this in my own life, that times of genuine confession and repentance very often precede times of refreshment and transformation and deeper intimacy in my life with God. It's, it's not a formula. It's not like repent and he does some awesome thing. But I could, I could tell numerous stories of times where I was engaging in a behavior or an attitude or I was attached to something in a way that was unhealthy. And I had to come to this place of, of finally stopping just you know, running from God with that or trying to hide that thing or just trying to pretend it didn't exist and come to this place of finally going, God, this is, I know I'm doing this. I know this is what, what you want. And come to this place of genuine confession and repentance and saying, Lord, I'm acknowledging this is what I'm doing and I'm acknowledging I want to change and I'm acknowledging I'm actually powerless to change it and I need you. I need you to come in and do something here, but, but I'm bringing this to you as a way to prepare, as a way of just coming clean there have been so many stories in my life where I have done that and that has been followed by God just showing up and, and doing this fresh work of renewal in my life, revival of me having greater times of intimacy with him or transformation and healing in some part of my life. It's almost as if he was waiting for me to get to that place of genuine confession, repentance, so that his salvation and his healing and his transformation would then come. And so I want to just commend that to you uh, this season. I want us to enter into this, this just posture of, of confession and repentance, preparing the way for the Lord 
uh, that we might experience him in deeper ways. And I want to leave you with a question um, that I came across this week that really hit me hard. And it's a great question for, for the end of 2020, as we think back on 2020. And here's the question to ask ourselves. Do I want healing or do I just want relief? And I want to read you this quote I came across. Most people do not want healing. They're willing to settle for relief. Most people end their inner work after they reach the first flutters of liberation. I'm all better, they believe, but this is premature. Relief is simply the first layer. There's so much more. How much truth are you willing to wade through to come to complete healing? This is a longer and likely more painful process. So ask yourself, do I want relief or do I want healing? For the deepest healing, truth is one of the main paths. And I just think in this year, 2020, so often what we just, we just want relief, right? We, all we want, we just want the, the pain, the challenges to go away. But I think maybe God has something deeper for us in, in certain circumstances where he's like, no, I, just, I don't want just relief for you. I actually want genuine healing. But for that to happen, truth needs to be seen for what it is. And we need to repent for some of the ways that we've wandered. And so I want to invite us into this posture of saying, I don't just want relief. I do want relief. But ultimately, Lord, I want your healing. I want your deep healing in my life. And I know that that's going to come not just through circumstances changing, but through honest confession and repentance. So let's take some time even now to prepare the way for the Lord to do a fresh work through time of confession. Well, as John the Baptist prepared the way for the Lord's work and ministry as Messiah, the question for us in this is, what does it look like for us to prepare the way for the Lord in our hearts? And we've been looking at the role of repentance as one essential way of preparation. Repentance being this turning from our ways of living that are not congruent with the call of God on our life and turning towards Him instead. And one thing about this that I think is worth mentioning is sometimes when we think of repentance, we could think of our sin as a failure of performance. When properly understood, sin is a failure of intimacy. If our grief over our sin is simply disappointment in our inability to do what is right, then we are losing sight of the relational aspect of sinning. Properly understood, when we sin, we are playing the part of an adulterer who looks for satisfaction in another rather than the only one who can truly satisfy. And the posture that precedes repentance is one of a broken heart, a heart that is broken because we feel the weight of sinning against the one we love so much. So we come to our Father in confession, which is simply acknowledging what is true about what we've done. Lord, I acknowledge I have sinned against you in this way. I know you know this about me, and I humbly agree that this is true about me. When we confess, it frees us to live in the light. And then knowing that as Christians, God has already covered our sin. First John 1.9 says, If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you and purify you. So confession is one great step towards the freedom we are longing for. And confession and repentance makes room for God's wider work of sanctification in our life. 
growing us up, molding us, shaping us into people after his heart. So in that sense, this is how we can prepare the way for the Lord in our hearts. So let's give ourselves to confession and repentance right now. Let's take some time to go to our Father, our Father who loves us, our Father who longs for intimacy with us, and let's bring before Him anything that stands in the way of our intimacy with Him. Lord, if we are honest before you, we must admit that we have sinned times without number and we are frequently guilty of pride and unbelief and too often fail to find your way and your mind in your word in our daily lives. And though our shortcomings present us with a long list of accusations, we cling to the truth that they have all been laid on Christ as we put our faith in you. Lord, we need you to subdue what is corrupt inside of us, and we need you to give us the grace we need to change our course and change our ways. So, Father, help us. Help us to surrender to you all things, our life, our loves and affections, our ambitions, and everything that stands in the way of our faithful devotion to you. And Lord, may our surrender not be one of a reluctant heart, but may we run to you inspired by a glorious vision of your value, worth, and glory. And it is in Christ's name we pray this. Amen. All these pieces broken and scattered in mercy gathered, mended and moved. Empty handed, but not forsaken. I've been set free. I've been set free. Take our weakness, you set your trail.
Well, we hope you've been encouraged by the message this morning. And as always, we invite you to consider the reflection questions we'll put on the screen. And let me leave you with this beautiful benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.